Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. John chapter 18. John chapter 18. I want to tell you a made-up story about two people, but I'm sure that these people exist somewhere. Jim, Jim attends church regularly. He goes every Sunday. He's a faithful churchgoer, pays his taxes, is a good citizen in the community. Everybody seems to like Jim on the outside. Everything looks wonderful. But yet, when he goes home, he's a man that deals with anger. He's a man that deals with pride. He's a man that has a secret addiction to pornography. He's a man that if you were to walk into his home, you would see a totally different picture of what you would see when he comes to church. For you see, on the outside, everything looks good. He's a salt-of-the-earth guy. He's a good guy. Nobody would ever suspect that he had some major sin issues in his life. He's a family man. But yet Jim is living in sin. What's the sin? Religious hypocrisy. Religious hypocrisy. He looks good on the outside, trying to impress everybody at church. But the rest of his life's a fake. It's a sham. He is embroiled in religious hypocrisy. That's Jim. Lucy, on the other hand, she never goes to church. She could really care less about church. And to her, it really doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. As long as you're just, you're true to yourself. You do what you want to do. We have no right to judge anybody else. Uh, Her greatest values are self-expression and tolerance. All paths lead to God. She's basically dabbled in Eastern mysticism, and, and she doesn't really care what other people think about her. Her main deal is that you're just true to yourself. You follow your heart. You do what feels good. Lucy's living in sin. Her sin is different. Her sin's not religious hypocrisy. Her sin is moral relativism. Moral relativism says there's no such thing as absolute truth and you can pretty much live however you want to live. There's no universal moral standard that God binds everybody to according to his word. Now, if I were to ask you which sin is worse, moral relativism or religious hypocrisy, most of us would probably say, well, it's moral relativism. Absolutely, because that's where our country's going. And I would agree with you. But I want to remind you that some of the harshest words Jesus had were to those who were religious hypocrites. Now, it's my contention that both of them are equally sinful. Both of them are two dangerous sins. The sin of religious hypocrisy, the sin of moral relativism, they're both dangerous sins. And in both cases, it's a failure to trust Jesus alone 
as Lord. You see, Jim is trusting in himself to protect himself. It's all about self-preservation. It's all about looking good. It's all about making sure that he looks good to others. Lucy, on the other hand, she doesn't really care about what other people think as long as she's true to herself. She's just going to live however she wants. And she thinks that if I'm just true to myself, that'll make me a better person. Now, why do I bring up religious hypocrisy and moral relativism this morning? Because in our passage of Scripture, we're going to see both these sins head on. The Jewish leaders are going to exemplify religious hypocrisy. Pilate, Pontius Pilate, is going to demonstrate moral relativism. So let's read this account right off the heels of where we were last week. If you remember from last week, Peter betrayed Jesus three times. And he's standing in the house of Annas. Jesus is being questioned, and finally they're, they're bringing him before Pilate. So let's pick up in John chapter 18, verse 28. Verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. And Pilate said to them, Take him for yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who's of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? What is truth? Two sins. Religious hypocrisy. Moral relativism. And I want you to ask yourself a question as we dive into this text this morning. Could one of these describe you this morning? Maybe you're one of those that that really tries to look good to others on the outside, but on the inside, in in your other life, if you will, your life away from church, it's a totally different story. Or maybe you've come in today and you find yourself being a moral relativist where you're really not sure what you believe. You're not really sure what's right and wrong. You're kind of confused and, and it's just kind of this, this idea that, that I'm sure that all, all paths kind of lead to God and people, as long as you don't hurt anybody, you can pretty much live however you want. Maybe you're, you're finding yourself in this story this morning. 
Now, last week, there were two trials going on, if you remember. Ultimately, it was the trial of Jesus before the the kangaroo court, if you will. If you remember, Jesus is before these Jewish leaders, and they're, they're carrying it on at night, which was illegal. They were questioning him directly, which was illegal. They didn't bring any witnesses, which was illegal. This, this whole situation was illegal under the cover of darkness. So Jesus was on trial, and Jesus stood forth, and he denied nothing. Peter, on the other hand, he's on trial, but there's this little slave girl asks him that penetrating question, are you with, are you with Jesus? And, and Peter denies everything, denies Jesus three times. And so it's probably just a little bit before 6 a.m. The Roman governors would want to start work early, And they usually began to hear court cases just a little bit after 6 o'clock a.m. So it's probably early in the morning, 6 o'clock a.m. And if you look at verse 28, they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning, probably around a little bit before 6 a.m. They themselves, okay, the Jewish leaders, they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled so they could eat the Passover. Now, I want you to see the stinging and dark irony in verse 28. What's going on here? These Jewish leaders are saying, we cannot enter into a Gentile's house. If we enter into a Gentile's house, we will be defiled. We will not be able to celebrate the seven-day Feast of Unleavened Bread, otherwise known as the Passover. And so you have to ask yourself a question. What's the big deal about a Jew entering a Gentile's house? Why why do they not want to enter Pilate's house? Why did Pilate have to come out to them? Well, according to Jewish tradition, the Mishnah, any Jew that entered into a Gentile's house would be ceremonially unclean. Now, why? The Jews believed, whether it was true or not, of all Gentile houses, this is what they believed. They believed that in a Gentile house, the aborted fetuses of the children they aborted were buried under the house or were, or were thrown or, or basically washed down the drain. So if they went into a Gentile house, they may come in contact with an aborted baby and thus, according to Jewish law, be unclean because they've come in contact with a dead body and that would render them ceremonially unclean for seven days. So in order not to make sure that they don't get ceremonially defiled, no Jew would enter into a Gentile's house just in case because they wanted to celebrate Passover. Do you see the, the, the hypocrisy here? These men are going to great lengths. We don't want to defile ourselves. But all the time, they're plotting the death of an innocent man. They're going to great lengths to make sure they don't get defiled, but they're also going to great lengths to make sure Jesus gets killed. It's the height of religious hypocrisy. They're looking so good on the outside. Man, we don't want to go in there because if we go in there, we're going to get defiled. And if we get defiled, we can't celebrate the Passover. We can't play church. We can't look good in front of everybody else. So let's make sure we don't get ceremonially unclean so that we can do the church thing and look good to everybody else around us. Because Passover was important. What was Passover? Passover was a seven-day festival, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that reminded the Israelites, the Jews, of what happened back in the book of Exodus. Back in the book of Exodus... 
God told the nation of Israel, you're going to get a spotless lamb. You will kill that lamb. You will put the blood of that lamb on the doorpost and lentils of your house. And that night, when the angel of death passes over the camp, and the angel sees the blood on the doorpost, your firstborn will be protected. Your firstborn won't die. Now, the Egyptians, they did not have that, and so all the Egyptian firstborn children died. The angel of death passed over, and the Israelites were saved. That's the, that's the exodus. That night, they left, and they, they crossed the Red Sea. So the exodus, Passover, is a celebration of bondage out of slavery through the blood of a lamb. And that's what these Jewish leaders wanted to go celebrate. We want to be able to be clean enough to go celebrate Passover because we want to celebrate being out of bondage to sin by the blood of a lamb. They are so blind because what are they doing? They're sending the ultimate Passover lamb before Pilate to be crucified. You see, back in the book of Isaiah, it prophesies about the coming lamb, the true lamb of God. Isaiah 53, 6-7. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, that's a prophecy about Jesus, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus was the ultimate Passover lamb on the way to be slaughtered on the cross. Earlier in the book of John, when John the Baptist sees Jesus walking by, what does John the Baptist say when he sees Jesus? In John 1, 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Lamb of God. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Jesus, the true Passover lamb, in just a few hours is going to go to the cross and die for our sins. And yet these Jewish leaders are clueless to what they're doing. They're rebellious. They're hardened. You see, they're more concerned with plotting Jesus' death than they are in recognizing that he is the Lamb of God. So they're going to great lengths to look good. Hey, we don't want to go into Pilate's house because if we go into Pilate's house, we're going to be ceremonially unclean. If we're ceremonially unclean, we can't go celebrate Passover. We're not go- That's not going to be good. We've got to look good to people around us. We've got to be religious. We've got to be pious. We've got to look good to others. We've got to be good Men that look good on the outside so that people will respect us. Jesus, just a few days earlier, pronounced a curse on these men. Listen to what Jesus said about these men, these very men that were so concerned about being religious. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 23, 25 through 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs which 
outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus says, you guys look good on the outside. You look like really good on the outside. You're whitewashed. You're shiny. You're you're pious. You're so religious. You look so good to everybody else. But on the inside, there's greed. There's self-indulgence. There's lust. There's hypocrisy. It's like rotting death on the inside, Jesus says. But you've gone to great lengths to make sure you look good to everybody else. You're committing the sin of religious hypocrisy. It's a graphic depiction of religious hypocrisy. I want to look so good to everybody else. I want to look so good to to make sure that in my church world, I am perceived as this upright person. Or maybe in the community, I want to be perceived as a person that's got it all together. But behind the scenes, in in your second life, in your hidden life, in your other life, it's a totally different story. Now here's often what I found with those who are very, very quick to condemn others in their sin. You know, religious hypocrites, sometimes in order to hide their sin, they become crusaders or very publicly outspoken against the very sins that they condemn. Now, what do I mean by this? They will publicly denounce Sin and be, be very vocally outspoken against sin as a way to hide the truth that they may in fact be living in that sin secretly. You've heard the stories, haven't you? You've got the politician. I vote family values. I'm, I'm a staunch conservative. I speak out against gay marriage. I'm this really, really strong conservative candidate. I'm the strong political, political figure. And then you find out behind the scenes he's hiring gay prostitutes and he's busted. For, for, for living a life that he's speaking out against. Or you've heard the politician that says, you know, I, I always vote family values. I always vote to make sure that we, we promote morality. Uh, he's the stellar, staunch, conservative politician, but behind the scenes, uh, he got busted for sending inappropriate pictures to his mistress. You see, sometimes those who are the most outspoken, those who are the most zealous, those who are the most crusading against sin publicly maybe sometimes are the ones that are hiding the fact that they're living that secretly. It's a way to compensate. And so this is the first sin that we see this morning. Religious hypocrisy. Well, we don't want to go into Pilate's house because if we go into Pilate's house, we will be defiled. And we can't be defiled because we can't go and be, the, be religious and pious and do all these things that look good to others at the, at the Passover. So, so we're, we're just going to hand Jesus over to be crucified. But we ourselves have religious hypocrisy all over our hands. We're stained by it. Now, the second sin, if that's the first sin, religious hypocrisy, the second sin is moral relativism. So they bring Jesus to Pilate, and Pilate's like, I really don't want anything to do with this guy. You guys deal with him. Really what Pilate says, you you guys deal with him, you're Jewish, deal with him. And what do they say? We can't put him to death. They had no authority to actually put Jesus to death. They had to hand it over to the Roman authorities. And so Pilate's like, okay, we'll play the game. 
I really want to just get rid of this guy, but let's, let's, let's question him. So in verse 33, what does it say? Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you king of the Jews? Now, now why is Pilate asking if he's king of the Jews? What's Pilate want to find out? Is Jesus a military leader who's got a secret army back there ready to ransack and take over Rome? He wants to know, is Jesus actually this, this military threat? Is he some lunatic guy? Is he a terrorist? I want to find out if he actually is a, a terrorist, if, if he claims to be a king, because we've got to be ready if there's an uprising. So that's why he asked the question, are you a king? And what does Jesus say in verse 34? Did you say this of your own accord, or did others say this about you? And what does Pilate say? Don't question me. I'm not a Jew. A little anti-Semitism there. Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have, have delivered you over to me. What have you, what have you done? And then in verse 36, Jesus gives this very interesting statement. He says in verse 36, My kingdom's not of this world. That's strange. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. I have a different kingdom, Pilate. Now notice what Jesus does. He doesn't deny being a king, does he? But he says, My kingdom's different. It's an otherworldly kingdom. It's a kingdom you don't understand, Pilate. It's a a kingdom not of this world. And Pilate's a little puzzled by this. What what do you mean? What's this language? A kingdom, other world? What are you talking about here? Pilate's a little confused by Jesus. But then Pilate realizes, okay, he's... Pilate probably thought Jesus was more kind of like crazy. I I understand he's not a a fanatic. He's not a a true king that's got a military uprising ready. He's just kind of a weird guy that's making some weird statements here. But notice what Jesus says. Verse 37. Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered him, You say that I'm a king. Now look at what Jesus says there in verse 37. For this purpose I was born... And for this purpose, I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who's of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus says, this is why I was born. Now, this is, this is Christmas time, right? We celebrate the birth of Jesus. Maybe you've never thought about the fact that Jesus was born to be the king of truth. This is why I was born. This is the purpose I was sent into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who's on the side of truth listens to me. He's the king of truth. John 1.14, the word became flesh. Jesus was born of a virgin. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. What did Jesus say about himself in John 14.6? Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Absolute truth is standing in front of Pilate in the person of Jesus Christ. He's standing there. Truth. Absolute truth. The king of truth. Jesus as the truth. The absolute truth is standing in front of Pilate. And Jesus says, I'm a king. I was born, I'm the king of truth, everyone who's on the side of truth listens to me. I'm the king of truth. So you have to ask yourself a question. 
who's really on trial here? Is Pilate putting Jesus on trial or is Jesus putting Pilate on trial? Jesus is putting Pilate on trial because Jesus gives a truth claim. What's Pilate going to do with Jesus? What's Pilate going to do with truth standing him right in the face? Jesus is the light of the world. In John 8, 12, Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, will have the light of life. What will Pilate do? Will Pilate reject the light and embrace darkness? Or will will he accept the truth standing right in front of him? Well, Pilate realizes that Jesus is probably not a military threat. And so in verse 38, you have this very interesting statement by Pilate. Jesus is standing right in front of him. Jesus is the absolute truth. Then what does Pilate say? What is truth? What's truth? What is it? Now, this is the sin of moral relativism that Pilate commits. What is moral relativism? It's the idea there is no absolute truth. You can believe whatever you want to believe as long as it makes you happy. You're the captain of your own soul. Do whatever you want. Self-expression, self-interest, all paths lead to God. Don't be judgmental. Be tolerant. Believe what you want to believe. I believe this. You believe that. You can believe what you want to believe. I can believe what I want to believe because after all, we're believing all the same thing. There is no absolute truth. In the end, we're all going to the same place. So just live however you want. What is truth? And you see, A moral relativist often responds the way that Pilate does to Jesus. What does Pilate do here? I really don't want to deal with this. I don't want to be confronted with this. He kind of shirks it. He kind of just says, get out of my way, Jesus. We're going to to take you to another place because I don't want to deal with it right now. I'm going to brush it off as quickly as possible. Back in March... The Barna Group, which is a research group, along with Summit Ministries, which is a worldview organization that deals with Christian worldview, they released a study of American Christians. And here's what they found from Christians. 17% of professing professing Christians actually have a biblical worldview. 23% of Christians strongly agree that what is morally right or wrong depends upon what an individual feels. 30% of practicing Christians strongly agree that all people pray to the same God or spirit, no matter what what name they use for that spiritual being. Further, 27% hold that the belief that meaning and purpose come from becoming one with all that is. Here's the point. Close to 20 to 25% of professing Christians are moral relativists doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter how you live. We're all going to the same place. And sadly, it's growing among professing Christians. Moral relativism. Now here's the interesting thing about Pilate. It's kind of a warning to us. God did not leave Pilate without a witness. What was the witness to Pilate? Jesus, standing right in front of him. Pilate couldn't go away and say, I didn't know the truth. He rejected the truth that was standing right in front of him. And so it's the same thing with you this morning. 
You can walk out of here and say, you know, I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I, I didn't know. You are like Pilate. You, you don't have an excuse because you've been confronted with the truth the way Pilate was. The issue is, is that sometimes in our heart of hearts, we don't want to be accountable to the truth. See, a moral relativist doesn't want to be accountable to truth. Why do they not want to be accountable to truth? Because if they're accountable to truth, then they have to own up to the fact that they're not living in the truth, they're believing a lie, and then when they're held accountable, that means they may have to change, and they don't want to do that. They don't want to hold themselves accountable to a higher standard of what the Bible says. So I want you to think about these two dangerous sins this morning. Religious hypocrisy on one hand, moral relativism. Now, Religious hypocrisy's greatest goal or value is self-preservation. I don't want anybody to find out my true self. Self-preservation at all costs. I got to save face. I got to look good. I got to make sure that the outside is, appears to be good to everybody else. My greatest goal as a, as, a, as a hypocrite is self-preservation because if somebody knew the real me, if somebody were to dive in and see the, who I truly am, then everything would come crumbling down. So I've got to do everything I can do to put the facade up. And that's living a lie. And what does Jesus say? Go back to verse 37. At the very end of verse 37, everyone who's on the side of truth listens to my voice. Religious hypocrisy is not truth. It's living a lie of self-preservation. Okay, so if religious hypocrisy's value is self-preservation, what is moral relativism's value? What is it prize? Moral relativism's greatest goal or value is self-preservation expression. I need to be true to myself. Whatever makes me happy, whatever brings me the most pleasure, self-expression, being true to myself, doesn't matter if there's a, a moral right or wrong, it doesn't matter if there's a standard, what really matters is I'm true to who I am. So I will do everything at all costs to protect my self-expression. Now that's living a lie. It's not on the side of truth. And both of these come from a root of pride. You see, religious hypocrisy proudly says, I'm going to do everything I can in my power to make sure that I have this facade where I look good in the eyes of others. Moral relativism proudly says, hey, nobody has the right to tell me how to live. I'm the leader of my own life. I'm going to make my own rules. I determine, my heart tells me what is right and wrong. So from this passage, we've seen two dangerous sins. Religious hypocrisy on the one hand, moral relativism. And I don't want anybody here to fall into either one of those two dangerous ditches. So, so what's the answer? What's the only response to Jesus? How, how do you respond to Jesus? As he stands before you today as the way, the truth, and the life, absolute truth, the only Savior, the King, how do you respond to Jesus today? Will you submit yourself to him as the king? You bow before him as the king. Everyone on the side of truth listens to his voice. If you listen to Jesus' voice, that means you listen to his voice with the predetermination to obey that voice. That you submit to Jesus as Lord. 
that you understand that he has the sovereign right to rule your life, to tell you how to live, to guide you and to lead you as the king. Now, why is Jesus worthy of our absolute allegiance? Why is Jesus worthy as the king? Verse 32 gives the answer. We kind of skipped over it, but go back and look at verse 32. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Just a side note of history. At that point in in time in Jesus' life, at that time in history, the Jews could only, if they had been given authority to put somebody to death, the only way they could do it was by stoning. But Jesus was not going to be stoned to death. He was going to be crucified. And at the only point in human history where crucifixion was the, the, the process of execution was by the Roman Empire during that time when Christ lived. And Jesus prophesies about the type of death he's going to die. So what type of death did Jesus prophesy he was going to die? Well, just a week earlier on Palm Sunday... According to this passage of Scripture, just a week earlier, when he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, listen to what Jesus tells his disciples, the prediction he makes in Matthew 20, 18 through 19. See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. What type of death would Jesus going to die? Crucifixion. John 12, 32 through 33. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, lifted up on a cross, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. So no matter where you are this morning, the only hope for you is in the type of death that Jesus was going to die, a crucifixion. The death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the King of truth, the only one worthy to be worshipped, the only one worthy for you to bow your life before as your King. So maybe you're here today, and I, I don't know who all who all's here, I don't know your hearts, only God does, but maybe you're here today and you're struggling with this religious hypocrisy. And you're, you're holding on to self-preservation. The only hope for you is to let go and trust in what Jesus did for you on the cross. For others of you, maybe you're a moral relativist. You're holding on tightly to self-expression. Kind of live in your own life, no matter, with, with no rules. The only hope for you is to let go of that and to trust in what Jesus Christ alone did for you on the cross. So would all of us this morning let go of pride and when we trust in Jesus Christ alone he's the only one that can forgive you he's the only one that can cleanse you he's the only one that can save you and the way to get into a relationship with this Jesus is to recognize him as the king you bow your knee before the sovereign king and as we sang earlier you surrender you lay down the white flag of surrender You say, Jesus, I give up trying to live my own life. I give my life to you as my Savior and my Lord. And the Bible says that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. 
So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And I want you to seriously think about the words of this message this morning. There may be some of you under conviction, either as a person that's maybe a religious hypocrite or maybe a moral relativist. Our only hope is in Jesus. So would you spend some time in prayer, and I'll lead us in a time of prayer this morning. Spend just a few moments going before the Lord and confessing your sin and being open with Him this morning. That you died on the cross for our sins. That you were crucified, you shed your blood, and you rose again that we might have eternal life. And Lord, help us to just really search our hearts this morning to see where we are. See if there's any pride deep in our hearts. See if we're valuing self-preservation or see if we're valuing self-expression. Both of those are prideful attempts to try to hold on to our own authority, our own, our own being the captain of our own souls, as opposed to trusting in you, Jesus, to be our leader, our Lord, our King. So would everybody in this room this morning, Lord, bow the knee to King Jesus. Lord, I pray for those that don't know Jesus that today would be the day that they would trust in him alone for salvation. And we ask this in his name and for his glory alone. Amen.